Uh, CRSP stands for the Center for Research and Security Prices. It's part or grouped with the University of Chicago booth. We use CRSP because it's actually a good measurement of, of movement in these indexes rather than more publicized. But not to be confused with the Canadian Registered Safety Professional Board of Canadian Registered Safety Professionals. Correct. Because Which is also the CRSP. Uh, if you confuse them with this, they will get very upset with you and then apologize because they are Canadian. There's also the Colorado Refugee Service Program. Oh, I, I have to qualify that a little bit. Uh, my wife is Canadian and I love her very much. So I'm not upset at the Canadians. I just believe they're overly polite. Welcome back to the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. And I didn't say it was exciting this time. It is exciting. It is exciting. I think yeah. most people would agree. Whatever is going on in the world right now, it's, it's not boring. That's, right. That is a, a, a sure thing. Look, look, two hours of live radio and internet broadcast during which at any point we might inadvertently say something that could bring the wrath of the federal government down on our heads. Yes. Through two That's, different agencies that we're aware of. Yeah. Right. Maybe three. And, and maybe more. Yes. And man, uh, that's exciting. It, it may it, not be as exciting for the people listening. That's all we're saying. Oh, yeah. right. It's probably true. Yeah. Well, this is the personal wealth coach and we talk about things to do with the economy and we have a bunch of disclosures to disclose. First disclosure, we are the personal wealth coach and the personal wealth coach is not only the name of the riveting program. Riveting in the meaning, sense that you are, is hot steel being used to put, pull you and hold you in place. Right. Yes. Um, it is also the name of an investment advisory firm headquartered in Salado, Texas, and registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which in no way applies their approval or disapproval or anything else. It just means independent investment advisors that are uh, fiduciaries like us that have more than $100 million under management have to register with the SEC. So that's really all it means. Yes. They're very clear that they don't imply any uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, or anything else with digits on your hand. Right. Hopefully. The, the commissioner will deny any responsibility. And this message will self-destruct. Right. It just did. It just it's did. Gone. It's gone. No, no yeah. longer around. All right. Uh, next one is that um, the, we just said that we're giving fiduciary advice registered with the SEC, but we can't do that on the radio. So what we're saying on the radio is education. Why can't we do fiduciary advice on the radio? Privacy rules, actually having to know exactly who we're talking to, all that good stuff. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There might be nobody listening, in which case we could give fiduciary advice and not in violation of any privacy rules because nobody could Pe hear us. People listen to us overseas. And in that case, it'd be privacy rules. That would be privacy rules. So we need to be very careful. Does about that, that mean right? that we are privateers? We're or privacy pirates. mongers. We're, We're privacy mongers. Very private. Right. Okay. Uh, you want to give the deem? I, I saved it for you. Well, we have this. This is an educational program, not an advisory program. Um, 
you know, and, and the educational information that we have obtained has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Or unsaid information. We really do not guarantee the completeness of unsaid information. Yes, one more thing. We don't get paid to do this program, and we don't pay to do this program. We have been volunteering our Saturday mornings, me since 1998, you since 1996, me being Jake, the other bald guy, Jeff. Uh, So we've been doing this a long time. It's not a paid commercial program. We do as a firm buy advertising on the station, KTEM, but the advertising is all for the radio program. And at the end of the program, we do give our contact information. That's about the extent of this. We've been doing this a long, long time for free. That has to say something about our sanity. It maybe says something about the sanity of the people that are listening, too. I don't know. We could be strictly a bunch of pro bonos. Yeah, yeah. Um, (sighs) We've got... Some more questions, and one of them is is on the subject we were already talking about, inflation. Uh, another one's on super bubbles. It seems like those are the conversations we're talking about already. So Inquisitor John talks about what are the four super bubbles mentioned in an article. Um, we've got, um, it's kind of funny, because this is uh, Jeremy Grantham, who is the uh, co-founder of the asset manager GMO. He is a curmudgeon and a bear, and we like him. He's often wrong, and he's often right there. Uh, but, but rarely in doubt. Never in doubt. I have never heard him in doubt. He is always very sure of himself. He's often wrong, and he's often right. He's predicted bear markets and massive market crashes about uh, twice as often as they've occurred. So maybe, maybe more. Maybe more. He often is doing this. And the fact that he is being trotted out, Jeremy Grantham is a great guy to get trotted out when the market's down because he's always predicted it because he predicts them quite often. Um, he predicts them when they don't happen and they predicts them when they do happen. And then right. he gets pulled out because he was right in his prediction some of these times. And there's, articles about is Jeremy Grantham a broken clock Um, and that's a reference to the analog days before the watches talked to your phone when you had a clock hands that were even if they were stopped they were right twice a day have to explain that because I found myself having to explain what a CD meaning compact disc not certificate of deposit was recently and I thought oh man the person I was explaining to knew what a record player was but did not know what a CD was. So, yeah. So, broken clock. Jeremy Grantham is a great value investor. He always invests as if the market is about to crash. So, he tends to invest in things that don't crash with the market. So, he's extremely good at what he does. Uh, And I want to emphasize that before I take apart why what he's talking about is he's got a definition that he calls a super bubble. And uh, John's question is, he's talking about the fourth great super bubble or the fourth super bubble. I think great super bubble might be double hyperbole, which is even better. Um, So this super bubble, we're in the fourth super bubble, according to Jeremy Grantham. 
what is a super bubble? Well, he's pretty uh, clear on what his definition of a super bubble is. It's a three sigma event across as asset classes. So there, there you go. A sigma of what? Well, we're talking about bell curve, normal distribution stuff. We're talking about an, a mathematical model that he's built to say for his own definition what a super bubble is. So he's totally correct based on his definition of what a super bubble is. But that doesn't mean his prediction based on that definition has any validity. What is a super bubble? What are the ones that he's talking about? He's pretty unclear about those. 1929, he mentions a lot. The year 2000, he mentions a lot when talking about super bubbles. Now would be the fourth one. So we're missing one somewhere between 1929 and 2000. It might be the 1973 oil embargo. I'm, we don't know. I'm pretty sure it was, this, it, well, looking at the amount, the percentage drop, he's got to be referring to 1973 through into 75. Because he's not just referring, he's not just referring to the stock market. And that's what that's what's part of this. It's looking at lots of commodities in his three sigma. What is a three sigma? Well, how rare the thing is supposed to be based on his prediction. Um, and he says we're supposed to be getting two super bubbles a uh, a century or one super bubble a century, and humans are crazy, so we've gotten four. There's something wrong with the math if his predictions say we should only get these once a century. It's kind of like the hundred year floodplain. You're familiar with this, but you know a lot of people when they're buying a house, they look to see if they're in the floodplain or not. Or when you hear the news about a big flood, we've had 600-year floods in central Texas in the last 20 years. So their definition of a 100-year flood probably needs to be something other than what it is. The people that develop these predictions on what is a 100-year flood, what is a super bubble, need to look at history a little bit more. And you can do that in floods. You can look at history in by digging down and looking at silt in given areas to see how often floods occur. And from that record, our 100-year floods have occurred about every 25 years for the last 300 years. So it's not even climate change that's messing with this. So anytime you have a prediction based on an algorithm that's pure theory, not based really a lot on data except what you're gathering, it needs to be peer-reviewed. And Grantham doesn't want to peer-review his super bubble uh, algorithm because it's part of how he's managing his portfolio. So that was a really long-winded answer to what are the four super bubbles? What is What are we talking about? Um, yeah, you've got something to add to it. I was just looking at a little bit of history. Uh, Jeremy Grantham said we were in a super bubble in 2016 and, and crashing and about to crash. Right. So according to and the algorithm, this should be the fifth and in, one. And in 2018. And in 20, So maybe the sixth one. And he's doing it again now. Well, actually, he did it at the beginning of this year. Um, no, he did it at the beginning of the year of this year, which is part of the reason why he's getting trotted out, because he said right. it before it happened. But, but so you, did we, and nobody's call, calling us to get on the programs. The, the important thing is, if you look at what Jeremy Grantham said, he basically said that to be out of the market um, three or four years ago, he said to be out of the market in 2016. Uh, he said the 2015 market decline, a lot of people don't remember that, but we had one. Yeah. Um, 
was the beginning, was the bursting of a super bubble. And so I just want to put Jeremy Grantham in context. As a matter of fact, he has a very high correlation. When Jeremy Grantham says the stock market is about to crater phenomenally and a super bubble is bursting, about 80% of the time, the market goes up dramatically thereafter. So he is a he is an indicator. Yeah. He is and an 80%. If you go opposite to him, 80% of the time, you'll do quite well. Now, we still like him. Yeah. This is something, you know, it sounds like we're beating him up here. We got to come back to this. You need, we need people like him constantly in the market. It's the, it's, he's part of the reason why we don't keep having super bubbles because he keeps coming out and telling people this doesn't make sense. It's too much. That's great. We need that. We also need the people that are buying Tesla into the stratosphere in times of boom. As much as they get hurt by it, we need them because otherwise you don't get new technology. We need money to pay people to innovate. And that comes from people that say, hey, I want to own something that could be really profitable on this new technology. It's something that's lacking in the rest of the world. So we love that too. And I know that sounds like I just said I love two opposite ends of this. I do. We need them because they work together in a way that gives us the long-term average that we have. Jeremy Grantham is willing to sell out of the market when it gets overpriced, and so he's willing to take profits. Um, the other side is willing to buy into the market when it gets overpriced, which means they're willing to stimulate innovation even at, a, at the cost of losing money. So th this is really important here. That balance is necessary, and even having some of both in your portfolio might be necessary. That's what the Standard & Poor's 500s is. It's got a lot of the really overpriced stuff in it, and it's got a lot of the really underpriced stuff in it. So is it a good place to invest? It's capitally weighted. I wouldn't say go jump into the S&P 500 without doing a lot of research, but you need it to have any kind of an average. And that's what these indexes are. It's an average of two sides of the crazy that you need in there. <laughs> it's kind of like our political world where when most people hear a politician speak, even if it's one they support, they go, oh, that's a bit more extreme than I'm willing to say. And if most people are saying that, then we'll probably get switches back and forth between these two polarized parties for a long time. I just found an interesting uh, headline uh, from a magazine. Uh, 2010, investors should heavily underweight U.S. equities. Underweight means sell. Get out yeah, of U.S. equities. Basically equity. be out of U.S. equities because we're in a bubble in 2010. That was 2010 from Jeremy Grantham. That was yeah, right ahead of a decade of really high growth. Right. And so, anyway, yeah. Jer Jeremy Grantham is very consistent. You got to give him that. He is consistent. And what's more, he's done well for the people that give him money. Mm -hmm. He manages $94 billion. He's done well for them. So his statements about when the crashes occur not being correct, he's buying companies that he thinks will do well in a crash, which tend to be good companies. That's a value investor. Oh, that's basically why we like him. 
He's putting his money where his mouth is, and it's helping people. If people are afraid, he's he's that's his demographic. We like value because we think it does well when the market drops, not if the market drops. We've been saying since the whole last quarter of 2021, well into 2022, hey, expect the GDP to go down for the beginning of the year, not go up. We've talked about we need a correction. The market's still taking off. We're getting into la-la land in a lot of parts of it. We're seeing that now. We're not that worried about a recession. This might tell you something. We're, we're not trying to politicize this. We're looking at it for what it is. And we've got another email is from, from Marty saying, uh, without lower gas price, will inflation be here until the next election? Yellen said the, world, the word stagflation maybe. Well, there are definitely parts of the world that are in stagflation. What is stagflation? High unemployment and high inflation. Here we have low unemployment at 50 plus year lows and high inflation. That's not stagflation. That's a growth oriented inflation that we have to get tamed so we don't get too much of it going. But it's not anywhere near as dangerous as stagflation. I want to. I, I haven't really hit that question all the way, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead and finish the question if you want to. Okay. Will, without lower gas prices, will inflation be here until the next election? The gas prices are, are a big variable, but we've got one of the major suppliers of the world being basically removed from the supply chain. Gas prices are going to be around higher for a while. The, the limiting factor is that China's not using as much as it normally does. Uh, we're exporting a lot more gas than usual, by the way, in the United States. And that's part of why our gas prices are up. And that's a corporate decision, not, not any kind of political thing. Um, w- will inflation be here until the next election? It might be. It's quite probable. It's only got two years left. I don't know if we'll have it fully tamed by then, but we, we might. I mean, something about inflation that's important to understand. Let's say gas prices remain at the current level for a year. then. A year from now, there would have been zero inflation in gas prices. Correct. That means inflation would have gone away. Right. The purpose in the Federal Reserve raising interest rates is to decrease consumption because consumption commercially and privately is demand. And the laws of supply and demand are in effect. Can we change? Can we increase the supply somehow? That would reduce inflation. It's really hard to do that with Russia leaving the circuit, with Ukraine not providing a bunch of food. So you can't really do that. We just have to lower the the supply of money. And even even if China gets over its COVID and starts producing again, it's going to take a while to crank the factories back up. That's A. B, people who had things manufactured inexpensively in China and found out that China is not a reliable supplier will tend to move that manufacturing somewhere else over time to find a more reliable supplier, possibly through automation back into the United States. We don't have, we have 3.6% unemployment. We don't have enough people to make more stuff. We've got breaking news on that subject. Okay. The most loyal of the manufacturer in China group in the United States has been Apple by far. They, they have been consistently loyal to making sure that they continue the partnership in China, 
consistently careful about how they talk about anything economic in China. Wall Street Journal News exclusive headline, Apple looks to boost production outside China. That's right now. Yep. So That makes sense. There's nobody talking about going to China to manufacture things right now. A lot of conversation has flipped the other way to how else can we manufacture this stuff? They're talking about other places in in India and in Southeast Asia. So that generally means Vietnam. But the reality is that eventually it's going to need to be automated because the supply chain stretching that far has safety issues. They could just get cut easily. Uh, political world changes on the flip of a dime these days, although dime is a U.S. currency. So it might be on the flip of a ruble. It might be yeah. on the flip of a yen. Uh, so when when you see this stuff happening and Apple comes out and says, hey, China's making it really hard for us to build stuff that we need to, to build, they as a corporate decision are moving their plants. It's taking them along. It's kind of the opposite of what Peloton was doing at the, the, the beginning of the pandemic. Of, All right, let's build a bunch of plants everywhere. China, uh, Apple said, hey, this may be over anytime soon. If we start making a new plant somewhere, we're talking about billions of dollars that get committed to that. And if we're caught overextended in the process, we need to make sure we can afford it as we go along. So they're making better decisions than some other companies, but they also stayed in China a long time, and that's going to affect them in the short run. That's that's this issue of inflation. Like I said, the, the Federal Reserve in raising rates raises borrowing costs, and as they raise borrowing costs. People tend to let, to buy to borrow less money to buy things, and that slows down demand. There's a really big purchase example is a house, right? Uh, and I, I have heard for the first time anecdotally people getting out of the housing market, not wanting to look anymore. Recently, this in the last yeah. week, because the right. mortgage prices are up, the material prices are up. There's still not enough people building houses. So even if you want to build a house, which is what this conversation was about, even if you want to build a house, it's just so hard to do it. You've got to find the people to do it. You've got to find the materials to do it. Both of those supplies are limited. So that's where you're seeing the expenses have finally gotten to the point where people are just saying, fine, I'll wait. This inflation that we're going through right now, by the way, is very, very different from the inflation of late 70s and early 80s that's being compared to the last time we had high inflation. That inflation- Much more like right after World War II. Yeah. The, the inflation that we're going through right now, the inflation of the late 70s and early 80s built slowly over about a decade. Uh, it started, it did indeed start with the price of fuel going up. Yeah, early but, in the 70s. But it became a spiral of wages going up and prices going up and wages going up and prices going up, driven largely by the unions. Uh, and it just became entrenched into the, into the American system. And the Federal Reserve was very slow to deal with it. And finally, Paul Volcker was appointed to the Federal Reserve uh, by Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter's non-election, despite everything else, is largely because Paul Volcker generated a massive recession. Why did he generate a ma He knew he was generating a massive recession, by the way. Um, he raised interest rates above their neutral level and kept them there. Now, what's the neutral level? The neutral level is when the Federal Reserve is neither stimulating nor retarding the economy. 
Uh, he knew that's what he was doing. He generated two recessions, as a matter of fact. Uh, and he, and that's, that's the reality. The current Federal Reserve Chair and the Federal Reserve Board have said repeatedly they want to raise short-term interest rates to a neutral level and go no further. Why? Because inflation is not entrenched in our economy. It's not entrenched in our imagination. It's not an assumption at this point. It is because of supply shortages. And raising it to neutral makes sense and allow the supply shortages to fix themselves, which I believe they will. We have basically a pretty much free enterprise globe that we're working in right now. Prices are up. People will make will find ways to create more things to sell at the higher prices, and, and I'm that's why we're so optimistic. By the way, there there are some other key factors here. the The areas with the greatest price increase because of lack of supply is oil, corn, sunflower, wheat. There's more. We can go down the list because one or two of the major suppliers of the world are out of the market. This is not a good reason for us to be happy, but it still can make us happy. Who's the number one supplier of those things after those two other suppliers? And that's us. This is part of the reason why money's flowing into the United States from elsewhere. And it's one of the things that the, the Federal Reserve has to combat is that all this money coming into the United States is adding more money into the United States right at a time when they're saying, let's limit the amount of money we have. So... There's a lot going on in the world right now. Going back to John's question about, you, you mentioned it earlier, why, what's going on with the other banks? Why aren't they, uh, why, the other central banks compared to the United States? and money flowing in the United States. One of the things that, that is concerning, and, and it's good to put things in perspective, the European central banks for the various countries, for example, are hesitant to raise rates because much of Europe is facing a recession right now, an almost certainty of a recession. Um, United Kingdom, Brexit was a terrible idea, uh, and they're beginning to feel the pain from it. Uh, the other countries in Europe are facing a recession, partially because of a uh, invasion and a tremendous rise in fuel costs that makes ours look like a piddle and nothing. Um, for example, even in Canada, I know this Canada is not in Europe, I don't think, but uh, even in Canada, the price they're paying for gasoline is twice that that we're paying in the United States. Part of that is taxes. But part of it is the fact they just don't have as much fuel in Canada as we do. In the, we don't have as much oil. We have a problem in getting more oil out of the ground and that we're short of people to do the work. We're short of labor in the United States. We have made a pretty good, we've done a pretty good job of keeping people from coming in the United States and working. And we're in somewhat of a hurt, at least partially because of that. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in the world. The world is changing. But the good news is, and I want to emphasize this good news, we are adapting quickly in the United States. We have a very dynamic, chaotic system. Uh, I expect, as Jake has said before, and I believe we will see more and more and more automation. We will continue to see growth. We will shift. Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be bumpy? Absolutely. Are prices going to continue to go up for a while? Sure. But barring some new development, I rather expect that the rate of inflation 
will be down substantially a year from now from what it is today. As a matter of fact, we may have hit peak inflation. Uh, a lot depends on the demand in China and the supply in China, and that's a wild card that nobody can forecast because it's up to political decision makers. But I think this is, in in the long term, in my view, is, uh, since I've been watching the economy for about half a century now, is definitely long term. Um, this is a temporary issue, and the health of our economy and the dynamicism, dynamicism, whatever the the dynamic nature of our economy is such dynamicism. that we will overcome this. It's dynamicism, but that is a really odd word. It still sounds wrong, so I'll just leave it as dynamic nature. Um, we, in the end, un- the, the, the distress that is hitting the rest of the world will marginally affect our lives in the United States. But we are in the best shape of any country anywhere in the world right now. We are better able to handle what the big changes that are going on, the big socioeconomic changes that are going on in the world better than anybody else. And I think we're moving in the right direction. We're ramping up our defense spending. We are recognizing that there are real threats out there. We're recognizing that we cannot put ourselves in the position of having a potential enemy supplying vital parts for our systems. It'll take us a while to fix that. It'll take us a while to get through it. But I have tremendous faith that we're going to do it. We have become aware. Um, to, to paraphrase what happened, what Admiral Yamamoto said in, at the beginning of World War II, Putin should have somebody say to him, you have awakened a sleeping giant. Yeah. Ukraine wasn't as focused on its military as it will be into the future. And they're getting support from a lot of other places that is focusing on their military. They're ramping up... and. The entirety of Europe just woke up. Finland and Sweden moving to be part of NATO is a big deal. That, that's changing things. Russia is being pulled out of its interconnection with the rest of the world. McDonald's is not coming back. They're selling the business. BP's not coming back. Uh, Shell is not coming back. Many, many companies are just saying, I'm taking that as a write-off. We're not going back to Russia. And that's a forever type move. This is like what happened in Venezuela. And Venezuela was like, you'll, you'll come back when you see how well we do. Well, we're still waiting. And it's been a while. So that's that's really, really big shift. Putin's just changed the world stage and... He's really limited Russia into the future, which means that food prices are going to be up until we find places to replace that huge amount of grain and fuel and fertilizer that was coming from Russia. Ukraine, people want to support and cause to continue or even increase what they were producing before. But we've got a long ways to go before we get there. So... That's kind of the wrap-up from my perspective. Inflation's going to be here for a while. Uh, maybe the next few years. Maybe well, by, by the say, next few years, I don't see in the same increases. We're already seeing peak as far as price increases. I think we're, we're going like, to see some lower rates of inflation going forward. It's not like prices are going to come down, but I believe when Chairman Powell said this week that he is – and the other members of the Federal Reserve Board have said the same thing. They are going to beat inflation. 
Oh, yeah. And they are going to drive it down. And I suspect sometime in 2023, we will see inflation return back to uh, a low number. In the process, it's going to hurt. That doesn't mean that prices will go down. It means that prices will stop rising at a rapid rate and they'll go back into the low single digits. Right. And, And it also means that growth in a lot of sectors that was dependent on low interest rates is going to stall out. It's going to slow down. Just expect that. Uh, it's going to be there. And growth in other areas, which were suffering from competition, low price competition from overseas, is going to accelerate. Yeah. The economy will restructure itself. Uh, unfortunately, as, as I mentioned earlier, if you want something to worry about, people want to worry about something. The problem with that type of restructuring is the place where the business leaves, namely Russia and China have a tendency to get into economic trouble. And then historically, that tendency is solved by an autocratic leader who thinks they can improve their status by taking the neighboring countries. Right. Yeah. And that and on the, historically on the, has led to war. So you've got the worry side. On the good side, it took oil being up at $115 plus a barrel for us to develop fracking in a way that could bring it back down. It takes prices to be high in order for us to develop the technology of automation that's required to replace the cheap labor that's not so cheap anymore. Right. I agree completely. So we're seeing innovation boom right now because prices are high. Uh, That's the good news. It hurts, but that's how we innovate. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. You can reach that line tool-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are... Uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.